Hey there, welcome to Wednesday's Richie Allen Show. How are you? It's five o'clock here in the UK in Salford. It's pretty cold out there. That, uh, that is kind of ironic. It's being cold out there. In light of who we'll be chatting with on today's programme, Professor Ian Plymer, Australia's best-known geologist, will be on with me in about 10 minutes' time. I've just chatted with him. He's a real gent. It's uh, the very small hours of the morning there in Australia. Ian is getting up to talk to us about his book, Green Murder, and why he's not convinced by the narrative around the climate crisis. Lots to get into with Ian. You can join in via the website richieallen.co.uk. If there's something you'd like me to put to the professor, please leave a comment there. This should be a very interesting show. Uncensored. Unfiltered. You're listening to Richie Allen on the world's most popular independent news radio show. It's the Richie Allen Show. Broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Yeah, so an extended conversation then live with Professor Ian Plymer. That is our lot today. That's what will take up most of the show today. I'm really looking forward to this. I've read the book kind of one and a half times now at at this stage. It's interesting, I've been speaking about Professor Ian Plymer for many, many years and often running bits of audio from speeches that he has given around the world. Look, what I am going to do throughout the conversation is I will be putting the IPCC, IPCC, that's it, side of things to uh, Professor Ian Plymer. That's my job. I'll be doing that and then getting out of his way while he answers Uh, those points or while he tackles those points, okay? I shouldn't have to do that, of course. These people should debate Professor Ian Plymer, but they don't. And that's just the way it is. So um, I had planned on running through, I suppose, some of the top stories of the day, but I'm running out of time, uh, I think. Or not that I'm running out of time, I don't have an awful lot of time to do that. This is very relevant to you and me. HSBC has announced this afternoon that it will be closing 114 UK bank branches because more people are banking online. I don't have to... I don't have to... What's the word I'm looking for here? I don't have to expand really on that, do I? Because we talk about cashless society the coming cashless society and what that will mean for for personal freedom. But yes, this is a trend that has been ongoing for some time now, not just banks, but post offices as well. In rural areas, it's getting increasingly, becoming increasingly more of an urban phenomenon too. HSBC saying 114 branches will close uh, as customers using them has fallen significantly since, since, You've guessed it since the pandemic. The bank said it would try to redeploy affected staff, but um, about 100 people will lose their jobs. That's a developing story this afternoon. A story that I find to be particularly ridiculous is this one. Uh, Lady Suzanne Hussey, I never heard of her, but she is the godmother to the heir to the throne. Yes, Prince William's godmother. Uh, Suzanne Hussey, or Susan Hussey, has quit her role at Buckingham Palace because allegedly, well it's not allegedly, I think she's admitted this, at a charity event at the Palace on Tuesday, 
which was run by or was headed by uh, William's godmother, the Queen Consort, uh, a woman called Ngozi Fulani, a black woman who runs a charity that looks after people who have been the victims of domestic violence. Um, Susan Hussey went to this black lady, apparently touched her dreadlocks and asked her repeatedly, or at least two or three times, where do you originally come from? (laughs) (laughs) Which I'm guessing, if it's happened once or twice or three times, it might be a pain in the backside. Like, I can kind of get that. But um, uh, another part of me says, you know... There are ways of dealing with it. Apparently this woman, Ngozi Fulani, was traumatised and violated. I've written about this on richieallen.co.uk. Um, a spokesperson for Prince William says racism has no place in our society. And this is where people who are a little bit sensitive get really annoyed with me because, yes, of course, racism has a place in our society. Of course it does. It has to have a place in our society. It's foolish to think or to say otherwise. But by all means, think or say otherwise if that's what you believe. But racism does have a place. There will always be people who think less favourably of others because of their ethnicity. And there is nothing you can do about that. They've been trying to educate that out of people for millennia. And they've never managed. And they're not going to manage now. Is it racism though? It's that old school silliness, isn't it? It's more of a class thing than racism. But they're making a big deal of this today. Anyway, Susan Hussey is gone. The godmother is gone. I'm not sure they can strip her of the title of godmother as it's a promise, a swear that she made in the presence of God and presumably the Archbishop of Canterbury, whoever it was at the time. So that's making um, headlines today as well. The World Cup is on at the moment. It's very interesting that Ian Plymer, the Professor Emeritus, will be with us shortly because the Aussies have made it into the last 16 of the World Cup. Good on the Aussies. They beat Denmark 1-0 while Tunisia beat France 1-0. France and Australia progress from the group, from Group D. I wonder does Ian Plymer have any interest in the soccer? He might have been up watching it. It's uh, approaching 10, uh, six minutes even past three in the morning, tomorrow morning, Thursday morning. Uh, where Ian is in Australia. So I wonder, was he up watching the foosball? We will ask him. So we will. What else is there? I I put a couple of things on richieallen.co.uk. A very interesting author, uh, a Nigerian lady, I think, or a British Nigerian lady, um, has given a speech to the BBC, and in it she claimed that society is suffering from an epidemic of self-censorship. This is a very eloquent woman. I've written about this on the website. Check it out if you like. She said, young people are growing up afraid to ask questions. And then she, again, very eloquently, I can't say it myself, um, said, and let me quote you here, about cancel culture. She says, "Um, we are all familiar with stories of people who have said or written something and then faced a terrible online backlash. There is a difference between valid criticism, which should be part of free expression, and this kind of backlash. Ugly personal insults, putting addresses of homes and children's schools online, trying to make people lose their jobs. To anyone who thinks, well, some people who have said terrible things deserve it, No, she says. Nobody deserves it. It is unconscionable barbarism. It is a virtual vigilante action whose aim is not just to silence the person who has spoken, but to create a vengeful atmosphere that deters others from speaking. And this is Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. 
She's an author who's won awards. Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. Check her out. As I said, I've written about this on the website. It is time, um, nearly time to speak to Professor Ian Plymer. Again, if you want me to put, if you would like me to put something to him, go to commentliveonrichieallen.co.uk. That's the best place to do it. Do it there. And I will put your questions to him because we'll have a good 90 minutes plus to chat with Ian today. Colds, seasonal flu and respiratory diseases, a nuisance, but we all get them. Now more than ever, it is essential to have a robust immune system. Inspired by the Zelenko protocol, Immune X365 is a unique formulation that combines effective levels of vitamins D3, C and K2, as well as zinc and quercetin. Take back your health with just two capsules of Immune X365 every day. As a special launch offer to UK listeners of The Richie Allen Show, you will receive a discount of 15% by using the code RichieAllen365 at checkout. Go to immunex365.co.uk to get yours now. And with free two-day track delivery. Uncensored. Unfiltered. You're listening to Richie Allen on the world's most popular independent news radio show. Coming up in about two minutes' time, I will be speaking with Professor Ian Plymer. I'm looking forward to this, talking about his book Green Murder and why he believes that the climate crisis is a terrible hoax that is going to cause, well... Catastrophe catastrophe for humankind. Ian Plymer shortly. I've given you the contact details already. I'll be picking up your comments as we go along. It is uh, Wednesday's Richie Allen Show, November 30th, 2022. It's very wintry out there today in the northwest of the UK. As I said earlier, that's kind of ironic, isn't it? Considering what we'll be talking about this afternoon. This is music from The Who. It's Baba O'Reilly. The time now, 10 minutes past five. Welcome to your Richie Allen Show, by the way. Yeah, The Who on The Richie Allen Show and Baba O'Reilly. The time is at 11 and a half minutes past the hour. It's a comment live on richieallen.co.uk. Please uh, leave comments there for my guest. My only guest today is Australia's most famous, most well-known geologist. He is Emeritus Professor of Earth Scientists at Sciences even at the University of Melbourne. Uh, he was Professor and Head of Earth Sciences there. He's also worked at the University of Newcastle where he was a Professor and Head of Geology. Now, in his latest book, which is entitled Green Murder, and I have a copy of it right here, he argues that it has never been shown that human emissions of CO2 drive global warming. He argues, he says, that large bodies of science that do not fit the narrative have been ignored by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the COP conferences and self-interested scientists. He also argues in the book, or even he charges the Green Lobby with murder, murdering people through impoverishment, murdering freedom of speech, suppressing scientists who dissent from the narrative. And he accuses the Green Lobby of terrorising children with apocalyptic visions of a scorched earth. I'm thrilled to welcome to the programme Professor Ian Plymer. Ian, thank you so much for for staying up so late uh, to speak with us. You are very welcome, sir. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Richie. Very well indeed. Did you stay up to watch the football? Because it's a red-letter day for the Australian team, for the Socceroos. They've just made it to the next round of the World Cup. Did you know that? Well, I didn't know that. Um, I did stay up to watch the rugby. 
I normally go to the rugby in Cardiff in late November every year. And then I'm in London at this time normally every year. But I've just been travelling so much this year. I thought, oh, I'd better stay at home. I've got a, a wife and a dog and I occasionally <laughs> like to come home and kiss the dog. And um, <laughs> I thought, no, I won't do it this year. I didn't stay up. I'll watch the repeat a bit later. Well done. Um, I'm a great lover of sport, as many Australians are. As many Australians are. No, it's fantastic. They've just beaten Denmark 1-0. The other game, Tunisia beat beat France. So so Australia advanced to the round Ooh, of 16. Wow. So, yeah, a, a big day for Australian sport. Great well, stuff. Well, a big day for Tunisia. And um, for Tunisia, be, yeah. Yeah, even though it didn't mean anything to them because they don't advance, but um, but yeah, no, but it it means a lot to them as a nation. It certainly does. It also means a lot to the integrity of football. Um, oh yeah, where you have yes. teams trying, even though they 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 have nothing really to put. But you said you're right. I, I want to ask you this. Um, straight straight out of the uh, out of the traps, you've accused the the movement, the Greens, of murdering people through impoverishment and and, and that. This fascinates me because when I listen to talk radio here in the UK, when I listen to LBC radio, when I watch Sky News, it seems to me, Ian, that the exponents of the theory, the, the particularly younger people coming on television and radio, they seem to be absolutely convinced of the legitimacy of man made climate change theory. And in that sense, are they not to be, um, not so much pitied, but to be kind of looked at maybe in a slightly different way than to accuse them of murder? I mean, if they really believe it, we've got to maybe look at them in a different light, maybe, no? Well, these young people are the beneficiaries of the dumbing down of the education system over a 50-year period. And they haven't been taught to think, they haven't been taught to critically analyse, they haven't been taught history, they have no knowledge of the basics of science. They are self-righteous, they are telling we older people that the planet's um, falling apart, that we're in a climate emergency and it's all our fault. Evidence shows that that's not the case. So you can either try to argue logically Now, you can't use logic with someone who's got themselves into a position without using logic. You can't use knowledge against people who have no knowledge. So the only thing to do is to shock them and to force them to get onto the back foot, as they have been doing with people like me for decades. Force them to justify their position. Force them. If they are going to be using solar and wind power, then why are you supporting power that has the equipment made by slave labour in China? Force them to justify their position because knowledge and logic doesn't work. And the only tactic uh, which they have been using for decades is a moral tactic, morally attacking people. um, And those people have knowledge, those people have critical ability. But when you attack morally, It's not that easy to defend. So this is very deliberate to turn the tables on these younger people and to force them to justify their position morally. They're victims as much as as anybody else then. If I I understand what you're saying, the dumbing down is something that was out of their 
control. Oh, oh very f- much so. Very yeah. much so. I, I want to pick you up. Look, everyone who knows the the show, they know that I'm more than sympathetic to your theories. I'm the wrong person to be speaking with you today because um, I'm you know, I'm a student of 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 yours without ever having met you, um, and and your research. But I'm going to do the best I can to put the other side to you. This would have happened, of course, 25, 30 years ago. We could have had proper debates. So one of the things that in, genuinely interests me, uh, Professor, is you talk a lot about how humans contribute 3% of the overall CO2 into the atmosphere and that there's a 97% that's um, generated naturally. And you ask a very fair, a very just question. You ask your critics or your opponents to explain that. Explain how the 97% CO2 um, doesn't matter and the 3% uh, CO2 contributed by humans does matter. Now, I've been looking at some of your opponents and some of their arguments, and they argue, they say that you and some of your colleagues are forgetting about the concept of turnover and profit. That the land ecosystems, while having a high turnover of CO2, they don't add any net CO2 to the atmosphere. They say that biomass which decomposes, first of all, had to grow. And when it grew, it breathed in CO2. So the CO2 released during rotting was first taken from the atmosphere by photosynthesis. And they say that you and your colleagues ignore this when you say the 3% against the 97%. What do you say to that? Well, I I very much agree with them. Uh, When you burn coal, you're putting carbon dioxide back in the atmosphere where it came from. When you're burning uh, petroleum, you're putting carbon dioxide back in the atmosphere where it came from. Um, This is part of the carbon cycle. And the planet is dominated by cycles of climate, but we also have cycles of oxygen, cycles of nitrogen, cycles of carbon, uh, cycles of sulphur. This is the way the planet works. It doesn't suddenly change the main physical processes because we happen to be alive. The second thing is that we are adding new carbon dioxide to the atmosphere all the time. This is a long-term process of degassing the planet. We are still degassing the planet. This is why the planet has an atmosphere. This is why the planet has had three atmospheres, one initially dominated by ammonia and methane. The second atmosphere, which has been the longest living atmosphere, was dominated by carbon dioxide, up to 20% carbon dioxide, compared with 0.04% today. And the third is dominated by oxygen. But during that time, we are constantly leaking out carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. So it's it's not a process of um, a cycle which is a short-term cycle. It's a, a short-term and a long-term cycle. And this is my principal arguments against those proponents of, of human-induced global warming. They do not look at cycles. They do not look at what's happened in the past. And they're only looking at the very short term. There is no doubt that humans have changed climate by massive land clearing. And we see that in, say, parts of Africa, Mount Kilimanjaro. But in terms of carbon dioxide, we are not creating new carbon atoms. They go in cycles. I've got loads of these, right? So this, what I'm going to do is put these to you and then you'll, you. you'll bat them back at me. I don't have your qualifications 
so it's going to be very difficult for me to follow up on any of these. But again, that isn't my fault. It's certainly not your fault. That is the fault of the other side who refuses to debate um, professors like you on air, whether it's here or anywhere else. I've tried to set these debates up um, for years. A genuine message from Peter, who is, uh, Peter Leddington is his name. He's a retired geography teacher and says he has read your books and has a lot of time for you. He says something troubles him, though. He says over the last 35, 40 years, the sun has definitely been cooling down, the the, the sun and the, the, the less activity on the sun. He says, it's a long email, this. He says, but even though the sun is showing a cooling trend, global temperatures continue to increase. Therefore, if the sun's energy is showing a decrease while the Earth is still warming, then the sun cannot be the main controller of the temperature. And he asks you that sincerely in good spirits. Can you explain that? Now, that's a complicated question. Um, the um, Just starting with how you introduced this, uh, the greatest arguments you can use are those of common sense and the refusal to do, debate me is international. People just will not debate scientists who are polymaths like myself. The sun has been cooling and it has been warming over time. Now, we have been able to measure cooling for about 350 years by measuring the number of sunspots. And it has been noticed that every time we have fewer sunspots, uh, we get cooling. And that's a period we're currently in at present. And we have cycles of solar activity. Uh, the 22-year cycle is the best known one. But we also have cycles on about 10,000 years and this is when we have a grand solar maximum which we've just come out of and we've just come into a grand solar minimum which started in 2020 and should finish in 2053. So like everything the sun has cycles. Now um, Peter suggested that there was a, a global temperature increase. This is where I have a problem. It depends upon how you measure temperature and when you measure it. If we look at land-based measurements, they cover a small proportion of the globe. They cover Western countries, especially the US and Western Europe. And many of these measuring stations have now had suburbia and airports encroach on them. So the measurements are not as reliable as they could be. So they are corrected for the urban heat island effect. And I, as a scientist, get very concerned with corrected measurements. We have other methods of measuring temperature globally. These are by radio sonde balloons and from satellite uh, measurements, which give you a three-dimensional picture of the atmosphere. So the temperatures that we see from land-based measurements are different from those from satellite and radio sonde balloons. So which ones do we accept? And I have difficulty with the land-based measurements which are telling us that we are getting an increase in temperature because these are amended data. We find in this country, and it's certainly the case in the US um, and probably elsewhere in many other places, that some of the older measurements are actually cooled, giving a longer-term trend, and I'm talking about a 100-year trend, of warming. And if you go back to the primary data, you see that there are cycles that are about 60-year cycles. And the key question is, when do you start measuring temperature? If we started measuring temperature 4,000 years ago in the Holocene um, maximum or the Holocene optimum, then 
temperature has been decreasing. If we started measuring temperature in, say, the Viking times, then temperature has been increasing. If we measure temperature from medieval times, it has been decreasing. If we measure temperature from the Little Ice Age, temperature has been increasing. And the Little Ice Age finished about 300 years ago. Since then, we've had a global temperature increase. But during that increase, we've had spikes of cooling and warming. So when do you start measurement? And if you start measurement at one time, you can say, oh, the planet's cooling down. If you start measurement at another time, you can say the planet's warming up. And are you saying, Professor, are you suggesting that the IPCC scientists are cherry-picking, deliberately picking um, starting points when when they measure temperatures? Is that what you think is happening? Well, the IPCC doesn't have scientists. That's an amalgamation of very selected information um, to substantiate their position. And this is why in that book of mine, Heaven and Earth, I showed that there were thousands of scientific papers that came with a contrary view. Now, with individual scientists, I don't know... um, Um, all of the information on this, but certainly in this country and in the UK, you have evidence of cherry-picking of data. And we have uh, many of these scientists who, upon retirement, say, well, you know, we had to stay alive, and I'm a bit sympathetic to that view. But carbon dioxide, to finish off Peter's comment, carbon dioxide doesn't heat the planet. it has a very low thermal mass. It is water that has the high thermal mass. And you can do this experiment at home. You can run a bath and the bathroom heats up because of the high thermal mass of water. You can do the inverse and have cold water in the bath and have a radiator in the bathroom and the warm air doesn't heat the water. Now, the atmosphere works exactly the same way. And if you are to argue that carbon dioxide increasing in the atmosphere warms the oceans and warms the planet, then you have a problem with the thermal mass of carbon dioxide. So I see that when we have cycles of the sun over time, we can see that they're cooling and warming cycles. And we can see looking at history and looking at archaeology and looking at geology, we can actually put measurements uh, to those cycles. So uh, I, I reject the idea that the planet um, is warming. We have some evidence that it's warming. We have some evidence that it's cooling. I reject the idea that increased carbon dioxide in the atmosphere will actually heat the planet because we see in the geological past, we've had six great ice ages. Six out of these six ice ages started when there was more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere than now. And in fact, three of these great ice ages started when there was 20% carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So it's very clear that carbon dioxide does not heat uh, the oceans or heat the planet. And then we've got ice core drilling, which shows that in the past, when temperature has increased, anything from 650 to 6,000 years later, the carbon dioxide content of the atmosphere has increased. So it's the exact inverse of what Peter is saying. So what we have to do is to reject a very large body of of chemistry and geology as validated science in order to promote the idea that small amounts of carbon dioxide added to the atmosphere heat the whole planet. Let me, and I um, reject that idea. Let me put the, the sceptical scientist's point of view to you. So again, looking for talking points today and looking for a counter-argument to, to your argument, 
it's a terrible place for me to be in because I'm not an academic, <laughs> but I, I'm doing my best here. And like I said before, I'm not a martyr, but I shouldn't be doing this. This should be on the BBC. It should be on NBC. It should be on oh, Fox the News. BBC will never have me. No, of course not. I know that, but that's where it should be. You know, we should have hours, hours of debates with people like you. I mean, you've earned the right um, through your academic uh, career, through your... Well, these are, these are trillion-dollar decisions we're making yeah. on these um, ideas. There should be debate. And this is what democratic societies are underpinned by, is debate. But not anymore. They say, uh, look, your your opponents would say, it must be great to have opponents. I, 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 I haven't made it yet. When I have opponents, I, I'll know <laughs> that I've made it. Um, they say greenhouse gases, they say, mainly CO2, but also methane, were involved in most of the climate changes in Earth's past. When they were reduced, the global climate became cooler. When they were increased, the global climate became warmer. And when CO2 levels jumped rapidly, the global warming that resulted was highly disruptive and sometimes caused mass extinctions. And just to finish their point, they say humans today, us, you and me and everybody else, we are, we are emitting prodigious quantities of CO2 at a rate faster than even the most destructive climate changes in Earth's past. That's the official um, IPCC uh, position. So they say, look back at the climate changes, the, the, the extreme ones in the past, uh, CO2 and methane were heavily involved, they say. Well, that's absolute codswallop. Uh, the, uh, the main greenhouse gas is water vapour. They never seem to mention that that um, water vapour can be anything up to 4% of the atmospheric gases, whereas carbon dioxide at present is 0.04% or some 411 parts per million. Methane is 1.9 parts per million. Nitrogen gases are even lower. So uh, the numbers don't stack up. Secondly, in the past, um, there is absolutely no relationship whatsoever between carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and climate. Climate is driven by a number of processes, but in the past we see um, climate changes have been massive. They have been extremely rapid. Uh, even when humans were on the earth in the period called the Younger Dryas, we had temperature changes of more than 10 degrees Celsius over a decade. Now, there was no industry on planet Earth then. That was a natural process. Um, as for mass extinctions, yes, look, it's wonderful to frighten people with mass extinctions. We have had major mass extinctions of life in the past. We have had minor mass extinctions of life. The best documented mass extinctions are those of uh, multicellular life over the last 500 million years. And mass extinctions in the past have been driven by extraordinary events such as asteroid impacts, uh, huge uh, volcanic activities, um, but they have not been driven by climate change. We will get some species shuffle off in a climate change, um, normally in cooling. And if we look over the history of time at the number of species present, every time it gets cooler, not warmer, we are stressing life and we have a reduction of species. However, since we've had complex multicellular life on Earth, the number of species has been increasing enormously. And we are still getting an increase in species. When people refer to mass extinctions, they're normally referring to macrofauna, large organisms. They're not referring to the bulk of the organisms on planet Earth. So I, 
I disagree with all of those based on geology. And this is the one thing that the IPCC and the climate activists like to ignore. They like to ignore the validated past where we can see that there have been huge and rapid climate changes well before humans are on Earth, uh, unrelated to carbon dioxide. For example, if that argument is valid, why is it that we had great ice ages in the past, such as the Pongolian and the Huronian and the Cryogenian, when the carbon dioxide content of the atmosphere was 20%, compared with 0.04% now? So a great idea, wonderful to discuss with the fairies at the bottom of the garden, but it doesn't stack <laughs> up with evidence. We are chatting with uh, Professor Ian Plymer. I don't need to tell you too much about him. Um, a renowned geologist and scientist. His latest book is called Green Murder, A Life Sentence of Net Zero with No Parole. Um, I've read it once and I'm reading it again. I genuinely, I wouldn't say that. I've got it here in my hand. We will talk about what net zero might mean for humanity with the professor as we carry on the conversation. But some really interesting uh, messages coming in from listeners, including Cliff Moore, who is reading Professor Plymer's book. Really good book, by the way, he says, still reading it. And he wants to put a couple of questions to you. He has listened to a seminar by Professor Dan Britt. Now, Professor Britt seems to be saying much of the same um, things as Professor Plymer. But he threw in at the end of the seminar something about anthropogenic climate change. Apparently, Professor Britt says that he believes there is a correlation between CO2 in the atmosphere and sea levels. Is that true, Professor Plymer? And to what extent is it true? Uh, geologists have been studying uh, sea levels for a very, very long period of time. And sea level goes up and sea level goes down. For example... In the southeast of England, uh, the land level is falling, hence the sea level is rising relatively. In Scotland and Scandinavia, the land level is rising. For example, in uh, the Scandinavia, we have old beaches 340 metres above sea level. I've been to the castle of Turku in southern Finland, and that was built in the 12th century in the Gulf of Bosnia at, on an island. I've walked there now because the land has, has lifted up. So when people talk about sea level changes, they've also got to talk about land level changes. The land level goes up and down. The biblical city of Ephesus is about 15 kilometres inland and seven metres above sea level. It was a Roman port. That now is inland. The land has risen. The city of Lydia, where gold coins were first minted, I've been down the main street of Lydia in a yacht. So um, land levels go up and down very quickly, as does sea level. The relationship between carbon dioxide and sea level, um, there has been no correlation over time. But what we do see uh, over time is some rather weird correlations. And there was a Russian one done in the 70s showing that there was a relationship between sea level and volcanic activity. And uh, that work was never expanded on, but we know that when you put a large volume of lava onto the bottom of the sea floor, you have to displace that water, so sea level goes up. Uh, we also have correlations between solar activity and sea level, and it may well be that if there's a correlation with carbon dioxide, which I've never seen, but if there's a correlation, then that could be driven by the solar activity. 
we have been using sea level as ge geologists for a very long period of time. And the company Esso or Exxon in the 1970s constructed sea level curves. A fellow called Vale did these. And if we want to find petroleum, we need to have a, a period of time geologically where you have a sea level rise and we have sediment deposited upon land and then we uh, deposit more sediment on this as the sea level is retreating. And we are looking for maximum sea level for the formation of coal and for the formation of oil. These uh, vale sea level curves have been well known and they've been used in petroleum exploration very successfully for 50 years. So uh, this is one thing that geologists have studied in great detail is sea level. And sea level is not simply a warming of the atmosphere. Oh, blimey, we're going to melt continental ice. Uh, oh, sea level's going to rise. It doesn't work like that. Uh, we have land levels going up and down. We have sea levels going up and down for many, many reasons. And ice melting is only one of the many reasons why sea level will rise. I'm going to read two or three comments. Professor Ian Plymer is our guest. It's uh, coming up for 21 and a half minutes to the top of the hour. Again, thanks for doing this in stupid o'clock, as we say, uh, here in the UK. Thanks for doing it, Dean. Uh, Richard says, very good. He says this, Richard Kelly, the land rises and drops also. Clifton, who's listening to this in Waterford in uh, the southeast of Ireland, says climate change is the biggest load of... And then he says a great Irish swear word, bollocks, he says, ever inflicted on man <laughs> by the scumbags, he says. The planet will be here long after we are gone. We will have nothing to do with global warming. That is Clifton. Chris Morell asks, what does the professor think of the cult of Greta? We might come back to that in a minute. But you mentioned sea level rises, Ian. They are decommissioning towns in on, on the west coast of the UK in Wales. I know you know this. And this is devastating for people who own property there, decommissioning them because they are telling these people, we will be underwater in 40 or 50 years' time, so we're going to decommission the town. Um, I'm sure some of those people will be listening to programmes like this and wondering, what the hell can we do about that? But I don't think there's anything they can do, is there? Well, I think there is. Uh, I recently bought a waterfront property and tried to negotiate a lower price on the basis that sea level was going to rise. You <laughs> 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 <I> laughed at <laughs> And to, to use the expression of Clifton, you know, you don't believe that load of bollocks, do you? Yeah. <laughs> um, That's funny, that. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, this is um, basically a very complicated issue because uh, climate change like COVID, has been able to give petty bureaucrats and people in uniforms an enormous amount of power. And that power is being exerted over the little people. Now, it's quite normal for humans to have a, a despotic or autocratic streak to them. And they're using that to actually uh, have armies of unelected people control where you live, how you live, what you eat, how much you travel, etc. I am rather sceptical of any claims about sea level when you have Obama, when you have um, major climate activists in this country, uh, when you have Al Gore, when these people buy waterfront properties. Now, it's a case of put your money where your mouth is. And these people seem to think that sea level is not going to rise, even though they tell us this, but they buy waterfront properties. So... Um, 
Hang on we, a second. You're being uh, you're being a bit general there now. It's my I, I, much as I admire you, I've got to jump in. Hang on a second. When you say they, which of those people, Al Gore, Obama, do we know for sure has bought seafront properties? Well, uh, in the US, we've got John Kerry, we've got Obama, and we've got Al Gore. Yeah. Wow. Um, so, and in this country, we've got a, a former prime minister uh, who bought a, an absolute waterfront property. Uh, he was the one that uh, claimed that the climate change was the greatest moral issue um, in the country. We've got a climate activist, Tim Flannery, who didn't buy one waterfront property, he bought two. So uh, these these are people, I mean, I am being generous. I should call these people frauds and hypocrites rather than um, being generous to them. Some so, of them do believe uh, it, though, Ian. Like, when, when I hear... I, I know they are hypocritical. I know this. I can say that and still, I think, ma- maintain some level of objectivity because you you can't be flying around the world on small Learjets or, or bigger private planes and then lecture the world about reducing their carbon footprint. I agree with you. It's rank hypocrisy. But it, it doesn't mean that some of these people are not convinced of... Um, the need to reduce the carbon footprint of the planet. I, I, I get the impression, watching them sometimes, that they genuinely believe this. Some of them, not all of them, but some of them seem to be absolutely, almost evangelical in their approach to it. Well, that's an interesting word to use, evangelical. Some decades ago, I took on creationists who were arguing that the planet was 6,000 years old and that all sedimentary rocks and fossils were formed in a great flood 4,000 years ago. I actually went to Mount Ararat, did a BBC film in the Atlas Mountains because we couldn't get into Ararat uh, the second time. And I, I noticed that many of these creationists had scientific qualifications. What I found quite fascinating was that they had segmented brains. On one side, they could be very, very logical and pleasant. On the other side, they were savage, illogical, and no amount of data would change their mind. And this is why I think that our um, global warmists are, in fact, the new religion. They have their catechism. They have their holy book, which is the IPCC uh, report. And like most holy books, people haven't read them. The latest IPCC report was a few pages short of 4,000 pages. That hasn't been read by the climate activists. And I see comparing them with the creationists, that these people genuinely believe something that is illogical. And what I found fascinating about the human state is that the brain can accommodate logic and illogical thoughts at the same time and can switch very easily. And with the creationists, um, I went to Mount Ararat. We made a film there and I was there with a creationist and to this chap's credit, he actually realised that he was wrong. And he was the only creationist I have ever met who said, I got this one wrong. Now, I have met a few people in the climate industry, and that's what it is, a new industry to make fortunes, uh, who have said, oh, blimey, we got this one wrong. So I I think it's a very interesting human state where you can have a segmented brain. I think it also exploits what a lot of fundamentalist religions exploit, and that is the biological hardwiring for fear. We need to fear something. Um, This is why we have adrenaline. We need to be worried about something. And if you can politically exploit that, which is happening, then you can control the population. So I I think it's a very complex issue. I think it's a new religion. Uh, We can pay our indulgences. We can get redemption. We can sin and fly to 
um, Egypt for a COP27 conference and um, uh, fly away quite happy that we are saving the planet. Saving the planet. Can I, can I, I, can you put your hand on your heart, look at yourself in the mirror and say, as a man of science, that you have given anthropogenic climate change theory an absolute fair go, that you've looked at it, you've looked at it with an open mind, that you've reviewed the data, not with your, you know, not not with your own work, not with your own mind almost, but that you could separate and have a really good look at it as a scientist. Could you honestly say you've done that? That is the process I do all the time. Um, I um, am an expert on one of the biggest occurrences of metal in the world. And I published work explaining how this formed. And then later, about 20 years ago, I started to have reservations. I went back and looked at all the data and collected new data, and I had to change my mind. And rather than have a fellow scientist criticise me, I thought, well, I would publish the paper and criticise myself. Now, I use the same techniques all the time with climate. I read very widely. Occasionally, I'll read something that rattles me a little bit and think, hmm, I've got a bit of a problem here. And I would read further. I would look at the way the data was collected. I would look at the way the data is reconciled with data that has been validated from the past. I do that all the time because one of the keys to science is perpetual uncertainty. Science can never be settled on anything. New data can completely change your view. And this is the problem I have with the climate activists, that they reject anything that might be contrary. I spend my life disturbed, disturbed that I might have got it wrong, disturbed that um, this piece of data uh, is not in accord with that piece of data. So that is the normal process of science, uh, to be sceptical about everything even including your own work, which I've had to go through in my own life. And I've had to reject a lot of the previous publications I've written on a subject and um, revise it and come to a different conclusion. And this is the evolutionary nature of science. It is always changing, can never be settled. And Stephen Hawking did it famously, of course, didn't he? We are chatting with Professor Ian Plymer. It's coming up for uh, 12 and a half minutes to the top of the air. There's so much to get through and the time is disappearing. It really is. Um, we're talking about green murder. Do yourself a favour and get a copy of the book. You'll get it uh, all good online bookstores. You'll get it in your bookstore in your town. If you want to get an e-book version of it, you'll be able to do that as well. It's terrific and it's brilliantly... Um, uh, all of the references. It's brilliantly referenced all the way through. Let me read some more of these comments then before we talk about net zero and the horrors of of that. And it's, it's a, a great time to be talking about that, uh, Professor, because people are, are already receiving energy bills in this country of uh, 400, 450 pounds per month. It is breaking people. Isabel says, I think the real problem is not the amount of CO2 being released it is the amount not being absorbed. People should take stands against the destruction of forests, she says. I, uh, I've heard that bamboo is the most CO2 absorbent plant available. Wouldn't it be marvellous if instead of whinging, uh, the climate lobby uh, started getting together and create plantations in every city where bamboo uh, could grow? That's an interesting point she makes there because um, they don't talk a lot about these pretty obvious solutions. I mean, if they really believe that CO2 was deadly, there are some 
some pretty simple solutions. She makes a good point. Before you come back on that, uh, Patrizia says, would Ian know or know of Professor Tim Ball uh, because he's spoken about this con in, in many of the same terms as as uh, Professor Plymer. Thanks for that, uh, Patrizia. Richard, uh, another Richard says, I'm keeping an eye on crop losses due to a shift in weather in areas. Cold weather, crop losses. That's interesting. Um, but on the whole point of bamboo and stuff like that, yeah, they, they don't seem to have a lot of the fairly obvious solutions if CO2 was a driver of temperature. That's an interesting point. Well, that's quite right. Uh, we have in northern Queensland an area of pristine rainforest. This is inland from the Great Barrier Reef. There is a proposal by a wind power company to flatten that rainforest and put up wind turbines on a a coastal ridge that collects a lot of the the warm air coming up over the ridge. Now, if you tried to do that as a farmer or a miner, you would have been pilloried. However, for a wind company to flatten a, a, a pristine tropical forest, it's apparently okay. And the locals there are just getting bulldozed by local, state and federal governments and by the wind company. So this is certainly the case. Some years ago, I bought an outback property and it's an area where I have about four inches a year of rain. I have no um, crops, obviously, with a rainfall like that, and I have no stock. And I bought that because that was a clapped out area of land and I had been regenerating it. And you can do that yourself. Everyone can regenerate. You can do it in a small garden plot. And this I see uh, the, the comment by Isabel is an absolute critical comment. Lead by example. And if you really are concerned about carbon dioxide, then increase the amount of vegetation on planet Earth. Now, that's happening anyway because we are clearing less land for crops globally. We have had uh, better and better crop yields over the last 40 years. Uh, That's partly due to an increased amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, but it's partly due to better farming practices and fertilisers and genetic engineering. But we've also had desert areas get greener because of the increased amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So if you really want to do something, anyone can do this. Anyone can extract carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Now, I would argue why. Why do you want to extract carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere? It is plant food. And if we halved the current amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, we would have no plants. We would therefore have no animals. And that would be a carbon dioxide-driven extinction. Professor Ian Plymer is our guest. There's so much to get into. I'm going to go back to the contrarians again. So again, this is a scientist. I know you, you've already said you don't believe that scientists work for the IPCC, but, but these some of these people have qualifications. This is a guy working for the IPCC, and he was asked by a climate crisis sceptic about the models being flawed and you know, this this climate uh, crisis sceptic asked this guy from the IPCC, uh, this is an online exchange, he said, well, look, your models are flawed. Once, once we accept that, the whole climate change theory thing goes out the window. And this guy who works for the IPCC, whose name escapes me, but he does, he says, well, look, models are tested in a process called hindcasting. The models used to predict future, the models that are used to predict future global warming can accurately map past climate changes. And he went on to say, if they can get the past right, which they have done, there's no reason to think their predictions would be wrong. And he goes on to say, testing models against the existing instrumental record 
suggested that CO2 must cause global warming because the models could not simulate what had already happened unless the extra CO2 was added to uh, the model. And a guy called Zeke Housefather in 2019 published a study um, evaluating 17 global surface temperature projections from climate models in studies published between 1970 and 2007. And they found 14 of the 17 model projections uh, were indistinguishable from what actually occurred. And this was the answer the scientists gave to the climate sceptic. He says the models do work. They've successfully predicted the past. Um, we know they can predict the future. And he, he made that point about, you know, having to take out the CO2 to explain um, what has gone on in the last 30 years. That might be a little bit, it's very complicated for me, so I'm sure it might be a little bit complicated for some of our listeners, but you want to explain that, why, why you think this guy is wrong. Well, models are a genuine attempt, attempt to try to understand a natural process. And by the very nature of natural processes, you don't know all the parameters driving a model. Now, we use models all the time in mineral exploration where we integrate geochemistry, geophysics and geology, and we test that model with a drill hole. And we call these diamond drills rotary lie detectors. Time after time after time, these uh, exploration models don't work. The same with financial models. Now with these climate models, we have 117 climate models to play with. And if we look at the last 40 years of climate models and compare what they are predicting for the future with what we measure, then none of them have worked, not one of them. The only model that gets close to working is a Russian model that actually doesn't use carbon dioxide as one of the parameters for predicting the future. And in my book, Green Murder, I go over the last 2,000 years of people predicting the future, and they're basically using mathematics and science and a bit of religious zeal. And these 2,000 years of predictions were people predicting the end of the world. Now, if just one of those predictions was right, we wouldn't be here. So I'm very sceptical about the use of models. I'm very sceptical about the hindcasting because how many models do you use? How far do you take it back? If you take it back to, say, the last 2,000 years, there are no models that can predict the way in which the conveyor belt of sunspots uh, behaves that can tell us what temperature is going to do. No models in the past can predict what a giant eruption such as in 1815, the year without the summer, would do. There are no models that can predict uh, when an asteroid might hit us. There are no models that can predict um, periods of cooling and periods of warming based on solar activity. The models are underpinned by having carbon dioxide as a driving force and that is the assumption. And because that is the assumption, these models haven't worked. And I would argue that the models are very good evidence to show that carbon dioxide does not drive climate. And what does it matter anyway? Because when you look over the last few thousand million years, we see there's no relationship whatsoever between carbon dioxide and climate. There may well be a relationship over a long period of time between the natural warming of the planet and the later release of carbon dioxide. But to have carbon dioxide as a driver, there is no evidence. And I would argue that um, uh, the models that 
uh, predicting the end of the world are those models where we've cherry-picked information. And as a polymath, uh, cherry-picking is not on, on the menu for me. It's a bit like the detective, isn't it, who is determined, who, who believes steadfastly that Mickey Murphy killed Mrs. Ryan and begins to, even subconsciously, begins to fit things around Mickey as, as the culprit. Uh, there, there, there is a bit of yeah, that, that going that, on. Yeah, that's a good analogy because as geologists, we are detectives. We're doing exactly what a detective does. We go back to the scene of the crime and we use pieces of evidence to put forward a picture. Now, if you ignore pieces of evidence, you can argue that models and carbon dioxide, they're a great way of understanding the Earth. But if you look at all the pieces of evidence, going back as a detective to something that might have happened thousands or millions or billions of years ago, you get a different story. And that is what I find really exciting in my field of science, integrating all of this evidence and then having this horrible thought, what happens if, if it's a piece of evidence I don't know about? What happens if we've got unknown unknowns? So that detective analogy is a very good one. And you, and you spoke earlier about almost being sleepless at times, uh, you know, on, on the science and that you would do the Stephen Hawking thing. You have done it in the past. You've corrected yourself in the past. Professor Ian Plymer is our guest. The book is Green Murder. Pick up a copy of it at any bookstore. Clip, we are going to talk about net zero and the tyranny of it. And I've described it. I mean, I'm no scientist, of course. I'm just a, a broadcaster. But for me, it's kind of turning, you know, planet Earth into planet dystopia, an awful, horrible existence for human beings in the future if these people get their way. And Claire's question, Claire is in Ireland. This is a very interesting point. This We get a bit conspiratorial here. She wonders, is there a concerted effort to make... Um, to, to to demonstrate that climate change is extreme by doing counterintuitive things like banning the dredging of rivers and burn-offs in Australia. I find that fascinating. About 10 years ago, I was doing a television show in London and I didn't know, Professor Plymer, that in certain parts of this country, rivers were breaking their banks because... Um, dredging had basically ceased and it had ceased because of European Union directives about protecting some weird fly or some weird beetle that I'd never heard of. Um, and this was true and this staggered me because the news media was making much of these riverbanks bursting and oh God, it's biblical, it's climate change, the rains are getting heavier. In fact, it was because they weren't dredging and Claire is wondering, is this cynical? You know, the failure to ban, uh, sorry, the failure to dredge, is it cynical? Well, I'd need a couple of pints of Guinness to go through all of this with Claire or <laughs> Murphy. I'd love a pint of Guinness um, right now, yeah. Um, on net zero, um, I'll start on net zero and then get on to the changing of rivers with dredging. In my country, in Australia, we have a very high per capita emission of carbon dioxide. That is because we once had cheap, reliable energy. We set up big smelting industries, uh, which were bolted on to our mining industries. And so we produce a lot of the world's aluminium, zinc, lead, copper from smelting. And smelting consumes a huge amount of energy. So we can measure how much carbon dioxide in Australia that we put into the atmosphere. We are also an island continent, and on our island continent, we have very large areas of grasslands, rangelands, crops, and forests. 
we also are surrounded by a continental shelf. And you can do the calculations. The amount of carbon dioxide absorbed by our grasslands, crops, rangelands, forests and continental shelf is about 10 times that which we emit. So we should have gone to COP in Egypt and said, pay up. We're absorbing all of your carbon dioxide because we are an underpopulated continent. Now, in the case of the UK, you have a relatively, uh, well, you've got a population that's about three times larger than the Australian population on a small, precipitous, uh, damp uh, island. Um, and your emissions of carbon dioxide are higher than what your uh, forests and grasslands absorb. But if you look at the waterways around the UK, you actually are not a net emitter. You're already a net zero. So we're being fed language which is misleading and deceptive. Words like climate emergency or extreme climate or climate change or net zero. This is not conspiratorial. This is that we have a brand new business with religious overtones has been set up. And this is a business to be able to frighten you witless, to be able to get rid of simple, tried and proven energy systems such as coal, nuclear and gas, and replace them with expensive, subsidised, unreliable energy systems where we are dependent upon the weather, and dependent upon the Chinese for parts for these wind and solar systems. So um, we, we are having a, a, a significant economic change where there's been a new opportunity open up in the Western world. For thousands of years, we have been dredging ports and dredging rivers. The floods we had in 2020 in Germany were not as severe as past floods. Why? Because those rivers had been dredged. We had massive floods in Brisbane fairly recently in Queensland. Why was that? Because dredging had stopped and the dredging was for sand, which was used to make concrete for the building industry. This is the same in many parts of the world now where um, organisations such as the EU have banned um, the dredging of rivers for the benefit of humans. Their view is that we sinful humans must suffer, but we cannot do anything to change nature. Now, if that was the case, we wouldn't eat because we can't all go hunting and gathering. We have to change the land to grow crops. We have to change river systems to be able to dam water, to be able to use this water, to drink this water, to use it for irrigation. We have to be able to dredge ports such that we can have trade. So um, in many ways, the finger wagging by the EU and by the climate activists, again, is illogical and hypocritical. And I'm not so sure whether... Um, Claire is right in these being conspiratorial because most things that humans do, they stuff up. And uh, if you've got a conspiracy plan, you've probably got a good chance of stuffing it up. And so, on that on, on that failure to dredge, is it true, because I've read this but I don't know, do you do you think it's possible when you look at the, um, the, the wildfires, not just in Australia but obviously on the Pacific coast of the United States, California and whatnot, I've read again that the conditions for those wildfires 
um, have come about because of a failure to do tried and tested things like park rangers clearing scrub and, and areas like that. Is that part of the problem? Well, that's one of the two um, parts of the problem. Uh, this is very much the case in Australia where we had um, backburning uh, and the fire management by our Aboriginal population for 60,000 years. And in fact, that changed the vegetation in Australia from uh, fire intolerant to fire resistant vegetation. We certainly have that very good evidence of that in the US. And I go into that in Green Murder. Um, but furthermore, we have people who want to live in forests, who want to be close to nature. And so they build houses, often made out of wood, in forests where the vegetation has a lot of oils, such as eucalypts, such as pines. And as soon as you heat those, these oils evaporate, they explode, you get a fire crowning, where you get a vapour explosion above the tree canopy, racing in front of the forest fire. And so in certainly in Australia and certainly in California, uh, it is very bad management of forests and people wanting to live with nature that's led to catastrophic fires but they haven't been as bad as fires in the past. And we hear that in Australia, big fires of 2020 uh, were, were unprecedented. They weren't. We had bigger fires in 1939 and 1851. The only thing unprecedented was that we had instantaneous news feed from these fires. And if you can get if you can get feed of, of babies crying and yeah, women screaming yeah. and houses exploding, it makes great television. But these were not unprecedented. It was certainly unprecedented in terms of management of our forest fires. And we've just come through a big wet period in Australia, in eastern Australia, in the forest lands. And we can see that every time we've had a past wet period, we had massive forest fires. So past really, the really wet period of eastern Australia, the past one was 1955-56. We had huge bushfires in 57 and 58. We had whole towns completely burnt out, and these were towns just west of Sydney. So um, we have a long-term policy of bad management of our forests. We are listening to, we are speaking with Professor Ian Plymer. It's seven and a half minutes past six. My God, how... Uh, the time has flown by. We've got the professor for just over another half an hour or thereabouts. Again, sincere thanks for staying up at the witching hour for us. Um, Ian Plymer is about the world's most, I suppose, well-known sceptic scientist. He's a scientist, a renowned geologist and scientist who is sceptical that at the claim that, that um, man-made CO2 is uh, causing a climate crisis which might lead to the end of the world and he's written several books on this his latest is Green Murder and he argues in the book that the policies that are being introduced to try and fight this non-existent climate crisis um, destroy economies, destroy sovereignty, freedom, lead to debt, no travel, no jobs, no reliable food and blissful socialist happiness with no possessions. We um, talk sometimes about Klaus Schwab's great reset on this program, the uh, World Economic Forum. And I, I used to be one of those, just like you, that thought that politicians and NGOs were far too stupid and incompetent to be able to put together a conspiracy. But I'll tell you what, Ian, these days I'm not so sure that they are incompetent. I see a pattern here. I see a desire, because I, I think we can see it in other things. I think we can see it in the way that they responded to COVID. 
I think, that there is a desire. And would you believe I, I, I spoke um, uh, a couple of years ago with an, an Irish lawyer who worked for the United Nations, a woman called Fanula Nielon, Ni and she said that when, when, when she sees, she worked for the UN, this woman, when she sees governments bringing out lockdown policies for COVID and telling children not to hug granddad or gran, and when she sees some of the dr draconian things that um, they are proposing to deal with, with climate change, she says, well, it's almost like these, th these draconian policies were, were kind of sitting around in a, in a drawer waiting for the right opportunity to use them. I think her central theory was, in an interview she did with Sky News, in fact, as well, was that um, there, 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 there has been a long... A desire has been long held by elites um, to create a kind of a prison planet where we don't have freedom, where everything we do is monitored morning, noon and night, where we go, who we speak to, what we can do, what we can't do, what we can't say. So I'm leaning towards there's a bit of a plan here, but um, I've been known to be wrong. What's, what say you? Well, uh, in my view, Klaus Schwab is uh, an evil person. He represents all that is evil in the Western world. We humans like to have power over other humans. I feed parrots in the in the backyard of my house here, and I sit out there having a quiet alcoholic drink at the end of the day, and I watch the way the parrots interact, and they are having power over those within their species and on other species. And I think this is a very natural biological thing, to exert power over others within your species. In the human world, we can exert power by being elected. What concerns me are the people who are unelected, your Klaus Schwabs of the world, who are quite happy to train future leaders like the prime ministers of Canada, of New Zealand, and train these people in the socialist grab for power. And part of having power is making sure that no one can criticise you. And to do that, you have to take away freedoms. So um, I have seen it with COVID. I am very, very concerned about um, what has happened uh, with COVID. I see what's happening currently in China is exactly what happened in Victoria, one of the states of Australia, uh, the brutality of the police and the government uh, was um, inconceivable. And, and we uh, are in a period where the pendulum has swung one way, and that's towards totalitarianism. Uh, in the past, it swung back again. It may well take time. So my concern is not the, the power of governments. My concern is the weakness of governments and the fact that um, we can have unelected people exert huge amounts of power. And this is the IPCC. This is the UN. This is the class farbs of the world. And uh, that is exacerbated by having no leaders whatsoever in the Western world. None. We have no one who's, who, who can stand up and say, this is what I stand for. We don't have that. We're in a period of great weakness. And this is why I think each and every person should question and should argue. And the worst thing that a totalitarian person uh, can have thrown at them is saying, oh, that's interesting. Why? Well, show me the evidence. And this is the way I argue with climate activists. I don't use data. I throw it straight back to them. I say, well, that's interesting. Show me the evidence. And that leads to obfuscation or it leads to abuse.
Um, for example, you mentioned at the top of the show about uh, a question I always ask, and the question is, can you please show me that human emissions of carbon dioxide drive global warming? That's never been shown. I've asked former chief scientists, and on Monday I'm in Melbourne sitting on a board with one of these former chief scientists, and I've asked him three or four times, just please give me half a dozen scientific papers that prove that human emissions drive global warming. He obfuscates, but I've never had that data. And that is the best way, I think, to argue. That is the best way to ask questions. After all, this is what we should be doing. We should be questioning everything. We shouldn't accept what anyone tells us because there is somewhere in the agenda a self-interest. There's so many comments, right? Let me read a few of these. Patricia is listening in Zurich. We, we, we reach a lot of countries on this show, uh, Professor, he says, boastingly or boastfully. But we do. Uh, 110 countries pick, pick up the program. Patricia's in Zurich. Um, I don't have any advanced knowledge of climate change, she says, but I, I was wondering if the entire claim that humans are causing uh, CO2 or human CO2 is leading to the destruction of the planet is just part of a eugenicist program. I, I'm sure you've been asked these programs before. Again, in the past, I would have kind of been inclined to smirk at that. Not smirk at Patricia, but I might have thought, oh, that's a bit of a stretch. But many of you, Tony Blair, for example, like I could name a lot of recent leaders who have openly said that there are too many people on the planet. So it's a legitimate question. Is is is, is this somehow driving this, uh, this agenda? Well, Patricia, thank you for that question. Um, in the long ago, I used to fly into uh, Zurich uh, once a month and then get the train up to Konstanz. I had a girlfriend there. Um, Sounds lovely. That was in the in the 60s. Uh, she's asleep upstairs in this house. We've been married for a long Fantastic. period of time. Um, uh, Zurich is a place that gives me very fond memories. Um, we have got ourselves in a position now where the calorific intake and the longevity of all humans on planet Earth has increased. We're actually producing more food than we need. And in the Western world, we are wasting a lot of food. Um, the green movement uh, is very keen on reducing the population of people in the West. Uh, I have no doubt about that. And this is one of the reasons I called the book Green Murder. Now, I would argue that they should um, lead by example and shuffle off before us. Um, I would argue that this is a mechanism of trying to control people, of having people consume less and people eat less. Now, as consumers, we actually have money going around in circles. It creates more, uh, more employment and we have more and more people who are becoming wealthy. And once you become wealthy, your consumption patterns change, you produce fewer children, you don't need 13 children, such as a few might live and keep you in your old age. And the greatest uh, solution to overpopulation in the planet is to get wealthy. And if we had that in, say, Africa, if people were able to have coal-fired power stations and not have UN organisations refuse to lend them money to have cheap, reliable electricity so children could have a light at night so they could study 
and do homework and better themselves, then we would have a decrease in global population. We have seen this time and time and time again. Every time a country gets wealthy, the population decreases. The standard of living increases. Maybe the quality of life doesn't. So I think there's a concerted effort to try to reduce the population of Western countries. And those people putting forward the argument, I think, should lead by example. Lead by example, yeah. Climate lockdowns. Back in March of 2020, it occurred to me, once every seven and a half years, Ian, I have a, a bit of a light bulb moment. It doesn't happen very often. We, we all head down the pub then and we have a few drinks and we say, we'll see you in another seven and a half years. I, I don't have too many brainwaves. I'm not being self-deprecating. It's true, I don't. I thought to myself, because um, I've been reading you for years and I've been playing your clips, audio clips from your speeches for years on this programme and others. And I thought to myself, God, that's going to go to climate that. The, the the idea of lockdowns, the idea of you don't get to drive your car on the first and third weekends of the month, you get to drive your car on the second and the fourth. And eventually we'll be allocated uh, a carbon or a CO2 allowance individuals through some sort of social crediting system like they have in China. I can't even believe I'm saying that mm. out loud, but is that a possibility that a climate lockdowns and a follow-up question might that be what pushes decent people, men and women, like people listening to us, like me, like you, might that push us over the edge to stand up to it? Well, I think um, uh, there will be a couple of things that will push us over the edge. We're seeing it already in the UK where people cannot afford their exorbitant electricity bills, yeah. where pensioners are required to make a choice. Do I eat? Do I warm a room? Do I have a hot bath? but I can't have three. We are seeing this with restriction on travel. Now, I had uh, a very interesting experience uh, earlier in November where I went on the repeat sector, uh, the repeat Australian sector of the London to Sydney marathon um, and only cars that had been in the 1968, 1977 and 2000, uh, sorry, 1993 rallies were able to, to go on this. And my car, I have a 1965 Volvo 122S and that went in the 1993 rally. It won its class. Uh, I bought the car after that. And so I went in this rally from Perth to Sydney, 10,550 kilometres, that's about 6,000 miles, on outback tracks uh, in the dust, the corrugations, the mud and snow. And the organisers didn't have enough cars to make it um, financially viable. So they invited other cars to come along. And there was a Tesla that was entered, car number three. I was car number 60. And car number three... Um, had a support crew of about 20 people. They had one lorry with a generator on it that ran on used fish and chip oil. Right. They had a second lorry that did the same. They had a um, large vehicle, um, a Range Rover with a trailer that had spare batteries on it, and they had a second Range Rover with spare batteries on it, and then they had a bus where some of the crew would sleep and where they had parts. So what would happen is this Tesla would be all fueled up, go about um, 120 miles and have to be then uh, plugged in for 45 minutes to two hours to get more juice. Further up the road was a second truck. So I worked it out, and I worked out that that Tesla 
for that 10,550 kilometres, averaged 100 litres of diesel and fish and chip oil, 100 litres per 100 kilometres. And in my 57-year-old Volvo, I did 10.5 litres per 100 kilometres. Now, what is better for the planet? (laughs) Driving a Tesla or driving a a very old car? So um, we are having everything attacked. This was wonderful fun. Now, in the future, I would not be allowed to drive in such a rally because I'd be consuming fossil fuels. Yet the Teslas that might be racing against me are consuming even more fuel. These Teslas, of course, didn't travel on the really rough roads. They cut corners and stuck to the sealed roads as much as possible. So they cheated. So this whole business of climate lockdowns is, again, a mechanism of unelected despots controlling every aspect of your life, everything you eat. Uh, I had I had beef last night for my for um, listeners. It's now um, about 10 to 5 in the morning for me. But last night I had beef. I like my beef. I like beef protein. And um, there is an argument you can put up that you save the planet by eating beef. I don't want that um, privilege denied. I can now afford to eat beef. Uh, I couldn't 50 years ago. I can now afford to travel. I couldn't 50 years ago. I can now afford to have a couple of cars. I couldn't 50 years ago. This is an attack on everything that people in the West have been trying to achieve for hundreds of years. And what brought us out of misery in the West was coal, which drove the Industrial Revolution. And unless those people um, those, these people who are trying to tell us to live a frugal life and go back to the old ways, I want them to give us that message from the front of their cave after their fifth consecutive unsuccessful day of hunting and gathering. <laughs> Lead by example. Get in front of your cave and just give us your message. But then, get out of my life. Leave me alone. And then we might follow. I've never said this to a guest on a live radio be sh- show before, but we can wrap this anytime you want because it is stupid o'clock in the morning in Australia. And we've had a good... Well, I, I have a conference call, as you know, at, uh, in a couple of hours' time. That's between London, Ecuador and Perth. Um, I've, I've had a cup of coffee. It's probably time to have another one. Um, I did get a good six-hour sleep before and I'll probably... Uh, have a, a little bit of a nap mid-afternoon because I'm on Sky Australia tonight and I, I have to look my beautiful you have to look best. Your best you're, just, yeah. you're just seeing my radio face at present. Well, listen, I said to you earlier on, there's two of us in it. I'm your brother here, radio <laughs> face. Well, look, um, I, I, I'll put one final point to you. You can answer this and then we'll let you go. Um, thanks so much for your time. And also to our mutual friend, the barrister, Robert Hansen, for setting it up. Uh, uh, really really yes. glad that, that Robert you. connected us. Um they're talking about the Club of Rome. Again, these NGOs, these these think tanks. The Club of Rome comes up quite a lot when it comes to the climate crisis agenda. This goes back, I understand, to the very early 1960s, this, this idea. Yes, it does. And the Club of Rome um, continually makes predictions about the end of the world. Every single prediction they got wrong. The Club of Rome, again is like many of these NGOs, like Klaus Schwab and and those of his ilk, these are people who are not elected. These are people who have a self-interest in trying to control your life. These are people who have got no skin in the game and all they want is to have a new creative mechanism 
of making money. And just just think of these wonderful ways. We can demonize uh, coal and oil and gas, which have got us out of a miserable existence 200 years ago into a Western life, a life where we can have warm food, a life where we don't have to be waist deep in mud, a life where we don't have to do what our fathers and grandfathers did, a life where we have warm food, heating, we can travel, uh, we can actually go to a different town, we can, we can use a telephone to contact people. These commodities have given us a great life in the Western world. There are countries struggling now to achieve that. India, China, China, of course, is probably the greatest example where hundreds of millions of people have been dragged out of filthy poverty by coal. Um, we are seeing the same in Africa, less so in South America and Central America. So the one thing that has actually made the human state better is coal, oil and gas. And we can measure longevity of people over the last 20,000 generations. The average global longevity was 25 years. But over the last six generations, the longevity has risen to 78 years. That's globally. That's not in the Western world. And that is due to fossil fuels. And so the attack on fossil fuels is an attack on your life. It's an attack on your longevity. It's an attack on your health. And it's an attack led by those who have invented these wonderful ways of replacing fossil fuels, which are reliable and cheap, with wind turbines, which you spear into the ground, and these wind turbines leak out bisphenol A, which is an incredibly toxic poison. Uh, each blade loses about two and a half grams of bisphenol A a year. That destroys 10 million litres of water. We cannot recycle those blades. We cut them up and we dump them and contaminate soil and water. Um, with solar panels, these are made by slave labour in China, and they have things like selenium and tellurium and lead in them. And again, we can't recycle them. We just dump them and contaminate soils and waters. So that's the end result of trying to save the planet. That's the end result of environmentalism. Um, if you are keen on wildlife, then you see birds and bats being sliced and diced by wind turbines, uh, especially uh, some raptors in mountainous areas. So what we have done is we have created an opportunity for people to come in and set up new industries of spearing the countryside with wind turbines, covering perfectly good farming land with solar panels, making a lot of money out of this, uh, destroying the environment, charging you more for it because it subsidised power. And if you do not follow then you get demonised. So th this is a situation where we have to fight it. We cannot allow 200 years of growth to give us a comfortable Western life, to be pulled apart by those who are not responsible and have no consequences for their actions. Folks, the book is Green Murder, Professor Ian Plymer, all good bookstores online and on uh, the high street as well. Thanks so much, uh, Professor. I really enjoyed speaking with you and uh, really chuffed by that, having been reading you for many years. Listeners really enjoyed it. Look after yourself. And, Thank you, uh, Richie. Hopefully Thank you for having me. we'll see change. You're very welcome. Professor Ian Plymer, live on the, the Richie Allen Show. It's coming up for 29 minutes past the air. What a lovely gentleman.
It is uh, time for me to take a very quick, a very quick break back with maybe a tune and certainly uh, more of your comments. Wednesday's show, the time, have I already given you the time? I have 20, yeah, nearly 29 minutes. Cold, seasonal flu and respiratory diseases. We all get them. Never before have your body's defences been under such constant attack. Now more than ever, it's essential to have a robust immune system. Inspired by the Zelenko Protocol, Immunex 365 is a unique formulation that combines effective levels of vitamins D3, C and K2, as well as zinc and quercetin. Immunex 365 has been specifically formulated to maximise the effect of each ingredient, giving your immune system system an optimum boost. Take back your health with just two capsules of Immunex 365 every day. UK listeners of The Richie Allen Show can use their special 15% discount code RICHIEALLEN365 at checkout. Go to immunex365.co.uk to get yours now. Now with two-day track delivery free. Ask not what the BBG can do for you, but what you can do for the BBG. Support the Richie Allen Show now at richieallen.co.uk. Yeah, just on supporting the programme, you know I had Mark Boyerski on recently. You know how much I love Mark. I know you love him as well. And he very kindly, at the conclusion of the chat last time, he said, um, what I'm going to do, he said, is I've got this box of beautiful crystals. If people go to markboyerski.com, if they buy an e-book... Uh, they will go into a draw, basically, for um, for the crystals, right? He's added to it. I think it was 10. I think it's 15 now. Go to his uh, YouTube channel for more details on that. But if you buy a book at, at uh, com, an e-book, proceeds will come to this programme and you'll be put in a draw for these, for these lovely crystals, which are beautiful. I've seen... Uh, the video I posted, the video on my website. So thanks again to uh, to Mark for that. I nearly forgot to mention that, and it's very kind of him to do a bit of fundraising for the independent media, but not for the first time. You have um, been uh, dropping lots of comments on richieallen.co.uk. Thanks for that. I will read them, uh, all of them, when I come back after this. From The Great Super Tramp, this is uh, Give a Little Bit. Yeah, Professor Ian, that's um, super tramp, give a little bit. Professor Ian Plymer is right, of course. People have to fight this. There's no doubt about that. It's the only way to stop it, is to fight it. I am not a, a Debbie Downer. I'm not a Debbie Downer. So I'm not going to say it won't work. I don't know. But what I will say is if, if they have convinced people of the legitimacy of their claim that CO2 as produced by our existence is going to make the planet uninhabitable in 50 years' time and flood our cities and our villages if they've convinced people of it, if they have. I'm not saying they have, I'm saying if they have. Then a lot of people will accept the solutions to it. I think that's inevitable. We saw that during the COVID scam. We saw that during the COVID scam. I mean, I I do still scratch my head and and wonder and think back at the behaviour of people, especially in the first three months of it. I think of a guy at Sifter's record shop screaming abuse at me, this middle-aged bloke screaming at me, calling me um, knobhead and wanker, screaming at me because I wouldn't put a mask on me. A customer, you know? And I was momentarily, because I'm a big boy and I... I can take care of myself, but I was momentarily disturbed, not at the prospect of getting a smack in the mouth. I've had plenty of smacks in my mouth, but just at the sheer, again, 
evangelical fervor. The guy was bug-eyed. You know, why am I bringing that up again? Because bodies were not piling up on the street. Like the guy, I'm pretty sure wouldn't have known anybody who was seriously unwell. That's the thing, you see. It's the thing they've done most successfully. It's their biggest achievement. By they, I mean the scum, the monsters behind these agendas. Is that they've been able to tell people, sorry, to convince people that their own eyes are deceiving them. It's obvious that we are not in a climate crisis. It's stuff and nonsense. It's a very old expression. It is nonsense. It's obvious that there isn't a climate emergency. It's fucking freezing today. It's freezing because it's the northwest of the UK and it's the last day of November. (laughs) Every now and then you get a mild day. Once in a blue moon you get some really hot days in the summer, but pretty much the summers are usually shit. They're usually mild, not warm, not cold, but mild and grey. You know, things don't change. It's not, it's not, the the climate isn't changing. But they've managed to convince people their own eyes are deceiving them. And my point is, and I'll say it again and I'll read your comments, if they have managed to convince the great majority of the world's population that there is a climate emergency, well then, maybe... It's fanciful to imagine a serious opposition to it when they start telling you, you don't get to leave your home today. Why not? Well, because you have a carbon allowance and you've exceeded it. That is the carbon, the CO2 that you create through your activities, through your travelling, through your playing sports, through your going to the pub or going to the restaurant. No, you don't get to do that stuff because you have an allowance. I'd like to think that if it got to that, that people would start to to throw punches. And I don't believe in violence as a means of, of, of resolution, of solving these things. But I would probably punch the air if people said no. No, 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 no. Enough is enough now. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping. Brian quotes, Brian even quotes Solzhenitsyn. He says, take courage and refuse totalitarianism in all its disguises. A decline in courage may be the most striking feature which an outside observer notices in the West. Declining courage has been considered the beginning of the end. That's all lovely and flowery and beautiful, but it's also fanciful. Not Brian, but Solzhenitsyn. You're omitting the programming. It's not so much about courage with people. It's not that people are cowards. If you completely believe that we are in Armageddon times, not the biblical Armageddon, but Armageddon where where the world is on the brink of collapse, as many of these young men and women seem to be, you know, they believe this stuff. So they're not cowards. And our neighbours who don't know what we know, and I always take care as best as I can to be a little bit humble, or as humble as I can be. I don't know what I know today because I'm very intelligent. A lot of good fortune came into play for me to to be where I am today. You know, being exposed to certain books and being exposed accidentally to certain researchers and certain films. I wouldn't be here today. And lots of our neighbours and our friends, they aren't where we are. They haven't been exposed to this stuff. And they genuinely believe what they're being told. And when you genuinely believe it, 
um, it's too simplistic to say they're cowards need to stand up. Well, stand up against what? They don't believe it. They don't believe there's an agenda to depopulate the planet. <laughs> they just don't believe that. They think that's mad. And and they think it's quite sad in many cases. You should, you should see the emails I sometimes get from people I knew many years ago. Are you okay? What's happened to you? I heard you're talking all this bollocks on the radio. You see? It's not cowardice that. You might call it, um, you might say they're obtuse. You might say they're willfully oblivious. I mean, you can't be really willfully oblivious. That's oxymoronic language. But you might say they choose to look the other way. I don't think so in many cases. I think they, um, you know, they believe it, especially young people. Uh, Colin says, you're bang on about climate lockdowns, Richie. Plandemic was a precursor and a test of compliance. Jenny says the problem is that large corporations have been stealing Africa's resources for some years when we should have been helping them to develop them. That's a good point. Uh, Clifton came back to say thanks uh, to Professor Ian Plymer. My kids will be listening to this later as part of their homework. And I, and I want it on the record. There is no record. This is where I get a bit um, uh, up in my own arse. No, I don't really. But I want it to be acknowledged for 45 minutes of that conversation. I challenged him on his central thesis, on the modelling, on the sun. I challenged him. I did my job. The problem we have is I can't follow up because I don't have the training. And this is why the world is at a serious disadvantage because the media has disappeared. The media is lost at sea, gone. Years ago on the Late Late Show on a Friday night, Gene Annan and myself often talk about this. I talked about this with John Waters. They would have given 35 or 40 minutes, which is a lot of time on television. Don't think it isn't. I've spoiled you because we have in-depth conversations with people on this programme, which, which is great because we get a chance to, to flesh out subjects. But years ago, 40 minutes, and they would have put Ian Plymer on up against some scientist who says that the end of the world is nigh. And the, the scientist who thinks that the end of the world is nigh could challenge Ian Plymer and also follow up with him. I can't follow up with him. There's only so much research you can do, you see. So I, I did my best to put the climate prophet of doom position to him. But after a while, and, and as I said at the top of the programme, I think he's right, Ian Plymer. Not the best position to be in when you're doing an interview with a guy like him. But he, they won't interview him on the BBC. This, this is Australia's most prominent geologist. This is a peer-reviewed, preeminent scientist. Credentials are impeccable. I wouldn't insult him by asking him the question he's been asked a thousand times about oil and gas money. He's never taken a penny off of anybody. They would have destroyed him if he had done that. No, no, he's not. He's not on the pay role of the lobbies for oil and gas. No, he isn't. He believes what he says. And I think he's right. The wrong guy to do the interview, obviously. But I wouldn't be if we had the other side, but the other side won't come on. I've asked them a thousand times, save the earth, uh, the Green Party, Extinction Rebellion. I've, pr I've The promises I've made to these people to come on, sent them samples of other programmes, told them, I am a guy who is a conversational host. I'm not going to shout you down. I am going to allow you speak, but I will be putting these points from people like Ian Plymer to you. Because that's how it works. Can't get the other side of it. Um, now, I know you will draw your own conclusions from that. I'm well aware of it. And you will say, well, 
obviously, Richie, they don't have a leg to stand on, hence they won't go on TV. And that's not entirely fair, because some of them do appear on stations like Talk Radio, where people like Julia Hartley Brewer will say to them, there's no evidence that the apocalypse is coming if we don't keep beneath 1.5 degrees Celsius warming. There's no evidence. This is just scaremongering. She will say that to them, to her credit. So it's not cowardice. I don't know. Um, Maybe it's the time thing. Maybe they, maybe balk, there's a lovely word, balk maybe, at the idea of, um, say it for me, um, spending 45 minutes or an hour on the radio where everything you've said is going to be examined and you're going to be asked for proof, you know. Lucy says, apparently Professor Ian is a climate denier. She says, I do shake my head. Yes, he doesn't deny that there is a climate. Uh, Diane says, Richie, I get, I got that in a hardware shop in McCroom. Screamed at for not wearing a mask. People we thought were close friends rejected us because we are unvaxxed. The husband was afraid of us, but he had the vax. How illogical is that? It's insane, Diane. And I'll tell you what, because we have a little bit more time than I thought we would have, before I go back to your comments, let me play you a little bit of audio. I did a post on the website about this today. An independent statistician did speak with uh, the aforementioned JHB, Julia Hartley Brewer, this morning about excess deaths in this country that cannot be explained away by COVID. More people are dying on average for 28 weeks in a row in the UK. What is going on? Listen to a little bit of an interview that Julia Hartley Brewer did with a statistician called Jamie Jenkins this morning. This is about three minutes long, um, but do have a listen to it. It's quite important, I think, about excess debts, which, of course, we've talked about on the Richie Allen Show for a long time now. Jamie Jenkins on Talk Radio with Julia Hartley Brewer. Let's also um, just just talk a little bit more about those excess deaths, though, because you've been highlighting this, and it is very helpful to have someone who is a statistician of your standing. You know, if someone, who, who would I trust to understand you know, NHS data? Well, the former head of health analysis at the Office for National Statistics would be pretty much top of my list. Certainly not entirely sure I can rely on government ministers to, to deal with this. There seems to be this extraordinary sort of silence, a murder going on in the media, mainstream media, and and uh, and across government about the excess deaths we're seeing right now. Because when we used to have sort of, you know, every tiny increase in the number of people, in, usually in their 80s and 90s, dying of COVID, um, that no one seems to care about all these people in their 30s, 40s, 50s and 60s who are dying not of COVID, but of other reasons, other causes right now. Now, there's a lot of concern that this is related to the vaccine. Is there any evidence of this particularly related to heart concerns? Because the the, the social media is awash with claims that this is all down to the vaccine. Have you seen any evidence in the data? That's a pretty bad journalism by Julia Hartley Brewer. The question, have you seen any evidence that the vaccines might be involved? That's a legitimate question. But she should have also said before before introducing Jamie Jenkins that a lot of people, many of these deaths might not be the vaccine, they might be down to the fact that people couldn't get exploratory operations and couldn't get tests they needed and treatment that might have kept them alive. 
So it's important to say that. So I would have said, this is not COVID debts, we know that. We have to accept that some of these debts will be down to the fact that people were not treated properly by the NHS. But um, So if we leave those aside, could some of the debts be down to vaccine uh, injury? That's how she might have phrased the question. But then far be it for me to be telling a luminary like Julia Hartley Brewer how to introduce a guest. But yeah, keep in mind, some of the, the, these debts must be down to the fact that people didn't get treatment on the NHS that they would have got if the NHS hadn't turned itself into a COVID health service. But what is his answer? Is there any anything in the data that shows that it might be down, or some of it might be down to the jabs? What does he say? Well, the data I'm looking at doesn't kind of give you any information kind of on the vaccine. So that's kind of where the government needs to step in. They will have information on all of the patients who are dying, what their COVID status, how they've been going through the NHS and the pathway through there, their vaccine status. And that's kind of where the Department of Health kind of can add that value more than more I can do by probably looking into the main causes of all of this. Now, Steve Barkley was on with Laura Koonsberg recently, uh, Julian. You said he hit the nail on the head, not one question. And we've had 28 weeks now in a row of higher than expected deaths when you compare the number of deaths in the country compared to the pre-pandemic and, it, and again we've had too many waves of COVID so if you strip those deaths out it's those aged 30 to 59 where we've seen some of the higher than expected deaths which are a bit of a concern. And, and I a think lot of those and these are non-COVID deaths and and a lot of them are, are heart related. We th- the, There seems to be the view that looks like a lot of it is people getting delayed treatment, delayed getting an ambulance, delayed getting treatment in in, in emergency. But She got there in the end. There is still this concern that, okay, some doctors said to me they think it's down to the damage to the heart from having COVID. But as I said, there is this concern, and we know there are impacts from the vaccines on, 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 on people's hearts. Um, uh, you know that is that is really very clear, and, and and some countries now, like Denmark and Norway, say they're not giving, they're not recommending boosters uh, to uh, you know under fifties, under sixties, because of the concern about the trade off in in risk. Um, is this something that the government should be and the NHS should be actively looking into? They should actively be looking into it, and probably it's going to require kind of a cross-agency approach mm-hmm. using the ONS, using the UK Health you know, Agency as well. That needs to be done, just to reassure the public, you know, what's going on, the silence. Yeah, good luck getting the NHS to look into the, the, the possible correlation between heart failure and heart injury and the jabs. Good luck with that. I don't expect it to happen anytime soon. A number of you have been saying that to me uh, today on on social media. Yes. <laughs> According to Patricia, she's a Minx's uh, brewer, Hartley Brewer. She plays both sides, but always comes down on the side of the establishment. That's playing with people's minds, says Patricia. Sort of slap and tickle games. Ask cardiologists. They know the truth, uh, she says. And Joseph says, people are so absorbed in their lives, they will just go along with it. And by it, I think he means climate lockdowns and stuff. Maybe. Um, Patricia says, Richie, you did a good job, but I agree it needs to be balanced by an opposing view. I really miss those great debates on The Late Late Show where everyone had an opinion and they weren't all the same opinions. My family have the same opinion on everything these days. It's nauseating. Thank you, Patricia. You do your best, but ultimately you're a layman or a laywoman, right? And all you can do is take the statements made by the IPCC and put them to Plymer. But when he comes back and says no because of this model and that model, I can't then take him on. I cannot take him on. It's, it's as simple as that. I agree with him and it doesn't help. I can't take him on. 
you know. So there you are. Okay. Um, John says, uh, Justin, he says, EU threatens Elon Musk with Twitter van unless the platform sticks to strict rules and, and polices content. And this is the Financial Times reporting this. Thank you, John. The Financial Times reporting. I haven't seen this yet. I'll see it after I finish up. Um, Musk is being threatened by the EU to put strict rules on about harm and to police content more robustly or you'll be in trouble. Yeah. And Apple, of course, is... But according to Musk himself, Apple has withdrawn advertising and has deleted all of its tweets. And we, we spoke about this yesterday with Tony Gosling. It's it's my contention. It's Hayden Hewitt's contention. It won't be governments forcing social media platforms to censor. It'll be the private sector. Yes. Mm. Very good. Leslie says... Greta Thunberg is not the prophet of doom. She's making a profit from doom. Is she? Is Thunberg making money out of all of this? I, I'd like to know more about that. I'm not saying I don't believe it. I'm, I'm, I'm well open to the possibility. But does Thunberg have an interest in companies that are making money out of it? And you know what? Uh, you'll probably want to slap, slap me for saying this. Even if she is, it doesn't mean that she doesn't believe it. Do you understand what I mean? I mean, even if she is, it doesn't mean that she doesn't wholeheartedly believe in the climate Armageddon theory. She could do, and, and, and also say, well, I'll make a few bob at the same time. But uh, interesting, I'd like to um, to know a little bit more about that. Yes, indeed. I do point for the days. My friends, of, of which there are few, when I say friends, I mean really close friends. Most of us have two, maybe three close friends. I think we would all agree with that. And then we have lots of friends. You know, we have friends, people we see from time to time. We get on with, but we probably have two or three friends you can rely on in the worst of times. And uh, my friends have heard me lamenting, just just as Patricia said there on, on the comment. I really miss the days of debates. And if you remember the first two to three years of the Richie Allen show, when I was based in, in Fallowfield, I it was it was I, I often had debates where I had two people on Skype with opposing views. At the People's Voice in London, my old television show, regularly had debates. Most um notoriously it was a brilliant um show, not not because I was in it, far from me being in it, but I, I did get uh, an arch Zionist in, in, in Tel Aviv called David Rubin, who used to interview with me, who used to come on with me during my Spain days, I had David on the line in Tel Aviv and I had Gilad Atzman, the jazz saxophonist, um, in the studio. And it was brilliant. It was riveting stuff. I really miss that. It's a real problem for me, you know, not being able to get people on the show with opposing points of view to, to kind of thrash it out and and you know, where, where I stay out of it and then at the end of it then you make a determination for yourself well that person convinced me or she convinced me he might have done she didn't or, or whatever the way it used to be and, and w- with my close friends I've been sharing this this angst of late that I don't get to do this anymore and it is a problem for me so um, yeah it doesn't mean I'm thinking of jacking it all in I'm not or, or anything like it but it means the show has to evolve I suppose you know, but um, yeah, anywho, I really enjoyed speaking with Professor Ian Plymer. Once again, his book is Green Murder, available most good 
retailers, places where you can buy books, bookshops on the high street and online as well. And lest I forget, thanks again to Robert Hansen, the barrister who has been on the programme in the past for helping with the arranging of the interview with Ian Plymer. Thank you, Robert, if you happen to be listening. I greatly appreciate it and I'd like it very much if we could schedule you coming back on with me for a chat, maybe this side of Christmas or in early January. That's it for the programme. If you came in on the end of it, of course it is archived at uh, podomatic.com. It's richieallen.podomatic.com. Whatever your podcast provider is, iTunes, whatever it is, Podbean, the the show will show up around about 25 minutes past 7 UK time. I will be putting it online in a few minutes' time. Thanks for listening. Have a good rest of your Wednesday. Closing out with Tom Petty. Bye. See you tomorrow. Bye now.